Last summer, my colleague and I set out to create our own sports podcast. Being two college students and lifelong sports fans, this was just a passion project at first. However, we noticed something interesting. We began by breaking down the biggest sports stories of the week, but soon realized that our interests ran deeper than the headlines. We decided to shine a light on issues that go beyond the typical day-to-day news of the industry. Stories of generational consequence. This is episode one of Frame of Reference. Frame of Reference is an audio documentary series focused on tackling the most important issues in sports. I'm Bill Atzel. And I'm Sorja Mukherjee. And in each episode, we'll examine stories that could impact the landscape for years to come. Historic moments in sports are often layered and the result of something bigger. In short, we're on a mission to find those answers. So join us as we go beyond the events to the questions and ideas at the heart of the matter. On today's episode, Pittsburgh Steelers running back Le'Veon Bell is arguably the best player at his position in the NFL today. Over the course of five seasons, the Michigan State product has established himself as a dual threat at both running back and wide receiver. However, the Steelers denied him a long-term contract for the second year in a row. While Bell was still guaranteed to make $14.5 million this past year, he decided not to play a single snap of the 2018 season. Some people felt this approach was driven by greed, and that his holdout showed he's not passionate about football. Others claimed that he was concerned for his long-term security and wanted the running back position to be valued. We explore the dilemma of Le'Veon Bell. Did he help or hurt himself by holding out an entire season? Whose side are you on here, Le'Veon or the Steelers? (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, a $64,000 question because I understand both sides of this story. This all kind of feels like deja vu. The Steelers, they report to camp. In nine days, what are we expecting to see from Bell? So the big question now for the Steelers is, when does Le'Veon Bell show up? Le'Veon Bell is not with the Steelers, and at this point, Adam, it it doesn't really appear that he will be uh, this week. Look, he came in on Monday last year of Labor Day. Monday came and went this week, he was not there. Tuesday came and went, not there. Wednesday, not there. It would be a surprise, it would be an upset if Le'Veon Bell showed up in time to play in week one. Let's be very clear about this. So, after the past year, you'd say that Le'Veon's a pretty polarizing figure in Pittsburgh, huh? Polarizing figure in the nation. Right. He's had a pretty interesting career so far. He has experienced a lot more in five years than most NFL players experience in their entire career. There's been a lot of ups and downs so far. You know, he's had some highs and lows that he's encountered. So how do we look at this? We decided to dissect Bell's career by breaking it down year by year, studying both his progression and also his shortcomings. I think a year-by-year breakdown will really help with showing how he grew as a player over time, and also how his relationship grew 
slash deteriorated with the Steelers organization. So in 2013, he was drafted. His draft stock wasn't super high. He came out of Michigan State, a pretty raw product. With the 48th pick in the 2013 NFL Draft, the Pittsburgh Steelers and Steeler Nation select Le'Veon Bell, running back. He was only the 48th overall pick in the draft. Yeah, and his 40-yard dash time was only a 4-6. Led to him trying to cut down on his weight from 244 to 230 leading up to the draft. And he had already established himself as a power running back with quick feet and good lower body strength. He's got really good feet for a big back, and he fits exactly what the Pittsburgh Steelers are. So, But many scouts were concerned that with the weight loss, he wouldn't be able to continue his power running at the NFL level. So his rookie year didn't really get off on the best foot. Literally. Since he sprained his foot in his three games <laughs> to start his rookie year. You know, it was definitely an unfortunate start to his career, but after that, I mean, he had no trouble assimilating himself into the starting lineup. Avion Bell back in and running back. And frankly speaking, it was off to the races. Bell sidesteps the first hit. Through the middle is a big hole there for Bell. Inside the 40. Bell inside the 20. And they get Bell involved again. Foot race for Bell in the Cleveland territory. Breaks a tackle. Le'Veon, to his credit, actually broke a rookie rushing record for the Steelers that year, which was previously held by Hall of Famer Franco Harris. And 860 rushing yards and 399 receiving yards definitely isn't anything to look down at, especially for a rookie in a 13-game season. So Le'Veon definitely established himself as a bona fide starter in the NFL in 2013. But it wasn't until the following year when he made his name as a budding superstar. Exactly. In 2014, he was not only a pro bowler, he was voted first team all pro. He tied an NFL record with three consecutive games, gaining 200 scrimmage yards or more. Tied Walter Payton, one of the greatest running backs in NFL history. And he was also second in the league in rushing yards and yards from scrimmage only behind DeMarco Murray. And he won Offensive Player of the Year that year. But after such a breakout season, he misses the 2014 wildcard with a hyperextended knee. Steelers lost that game 30-17 to to their rival, the Baltimore Ravens. And that sort of goes to show how detrimental it is not having Le'Veon in the lineup. And he was only a sophomore that year. Exactly. Twenty fifteen was by far his worst year in the NFL. Well, this uh, morning's big story, black and gold bust. Two sailors now facing those drug charges, and we are learning much more about exactly what led up to the traffic stop when police say that they found marijuana. He had to serve a two-game suspension from his arrest the previous year for DUI and marijuana possession charges. Ross Township police say that an officer was at a red light. He was in traffic when he saw smoke and smelled marijuana coming from a car. He pulled that vehicle over, and that's when police say he made the discovery. Driving that car, they say, was Steelers running back Le'Veon Bell. Which provided the media, the fans, and the NFL community with a really bad reputation in their mind of Le'Veon Bell. Police say Bell could face an additional charge. 
The Steelers released a statement saying, quote, we are aware of the reports and are still gathering information. We will have no further comment at this time. Reporting live from Rothschild. Moving on from that, he played only in six games that season before suffering a torn MCL. Ian Rappaport, and we're talking about Le'Veon Bell. Uh, ben Roethlisberger and Le'Veon had never played a full game this season together, and that will be the case for the rest of the season as well. What more can you tell us about Le'Veon? And even though he was playing well, he has officially been placed on injured reserve, ending his season as the team again he had to sit out for the rest of the season. Steelers are still trying to figure out exactly what is happening with Le'Veon Bell's knee, but we do know this: he has played his last down in the NFL in 2015, and the Steelers are going to have to somehow move on without one of the best backs in the game. He missed the playoffs for a second consecutive year. The Steelers obviously went on to lose to the eventual Super Bowl champions, the Broncos. Broncos and Patriots are going to battle for the AFC Championship next Sunday here in Denver. Both defenses were outstanding. Peyton Manning, that late drive, the running game, was the difference. And this was the beginning of the talk of, is Le'Veon worth the long-term risk? So 2016 was supposed to be, you know, a turnaround year. Uh, but again, suspended for three games in the beginning of the year. He missed an NFL-mandated drug test and did not start until week four. However, this is by far the best year of his career. He finished third among all running backs in the NFL, and this is despite his suspension. Voted to the Pro Bowl for the second time in his career, and second team All-Pro. And finally, for the first time in his career, he plays in a playoff game. The temperature here, 16 degrees. The wind chill factor brings it down to zero. Steelers fans had waited patiently for the big three, Ben, Brown, and Bell, to appear in the postseason together. And he shatters the Steelers' playoff record for most rushing yards in a game with 167 against their wildcard opponent, the Miami Dolphins. Bell's patience made the Dolphins' patience wear thin. And to make things even more impressive, he goes out on the road with the Steelers in their win against the Kansas City Chiefs the following week in the divisional round and rushes for 170 yards. Here goes Bell, good hard running Bell, 167 yards on the ground last week against Miami. She now has 145 yards tonight. However, late in that game, Le'Veon Bell suffered a groin injury and was not able to play against New England the following week in the AFC Championship that they eventually lost. So despite having a successful playoff run, injuries still come back to haunt Bell in the most crucial moments of the season. Which is why the following March, when he was up for a new contract, the Steelers slapped the franchise tag on him. So... The July deadline comes and goes. The Steelers and Le'Veon, they don't agree on a long-term extension. And he plays the entire 2017 season under the franchise tag. That year, he led the league in rushing attempts with 321, by far more than any other running back. He was the second leading receiver on the Steelers behind Antonio Brown, who many consider one of the best wide receivers in the NFL. He was also selected to first-team All-Pro for the second time in his career, and he was selected to the Pro Bowl for a third time. 1,291 rushing yards, 85 catches for 655 receiving yards, so another stellar season in the books. And Steelers go on to the playoffs, and he continues his performance from past years. In the divisional round against the Jaguars, he rushed for 67 yards and caught nine catches for 88 yards and scored two touchdowns. Unfortunately, the Steelers fell 45-42 and headed into the offseason with a lot of uncertainty. 
So that uncertainty kind of comes to a boil when the Steelers franchise tag him again for a second year in a row, and this time things don't really go over as smoothly. So what does Le'Veon's career actually tell us? Well, right now, it's kind of hard to tell. For one, even his biggest critics will find it difficult to deny how invaluable he has been to the Steelers since he was drafted. Chronic injuries and off-the-field issues aside, Bell has single-handedly propelled Pittsburgh to playoff victories in the past. Bell flashes, he's got the record, postseason record, and he's got the end zone. In today's NFL, Qualifying a player as a superstar is somewhat nuanced and oftentimes subjective. But in large part, it boils down to a few select qualities. Playoff success, consistency of production, and career longevity. For a player like Bell, this is where it gets a little muddy. It becomes hard to justify such a steep salary for someone whose career only spans five years. After all, based on our criteria, there were only a handful of moments that we could draw upon to suggest that Bell is worth the money he was looking for. In addition, Le'Veon's lack of availability during the biggest moments of the season might even make him seem like a bit of a liability. Now, Bell supporters will argue that this mindset overlooks all the work he's put in during the regular seasons, and so the question becomes a matter of durability. It occurred to us that the faltering contract negotiations had always been about the length of the deal, and the guaranteed money involved. Bell, like many others in a league where careers are increasingly shorter, was just trying to shore up his future and his concerns for his own longevity led us in a different direction. Our scope had always been too narrow. To fully understand the issue at hand, we needed to take a step back. This wasn't just about one running back. This was about the position as a whole. Picture an NFL running back. Who comes to mind? Do they use their size and strength to punish defenders between the tackles? Are they more reliant on speed and footwork to run around defenders? Or do they do both? The answer generally varies. Powerbacks, speedbacks, all-purpose backs, whatever you want to call them. Much like other skill positions in the NFL, running backs come in all different shapes and sizes. But what a lot of us forget is that initially, the term quote-unquote running back was colloquially used as a blanket term for two different positions, the halfback and the fullback. In the modern game, the term running back is broadly synonymous with what the league originally defined as a halfback. In fact, many of you probably thought of a halfback when trying to picture an NFL running back. The difference may be slight, but it's important to distinguish the two positions' responsibilities. The halfback is typically tasked with being handed the ball by the quarterback and running forward for positive yards. The fullback is meant to run in front of the halfback and block as they move down the field. Fullbacks, who are known for having bigger builds than halfbacks, will be handed the ball and pound into defenders on rare occasions. Long pass to the fullback! So sorry, give it to the fullback and Janovich's first carry in the National Football League is a touchdown! What we'll be discussing today is how a multitude of factors over the past 50 years led to the decline of the halfback position. Of course, since then, the sport itself has undergone a number of transformations. For older fans, the game is practically unrecognizable now. For the NFL, rule changes have come in waves over the course of the league's history. Whether they've made the game less restrictive for its players, 
promoted player safety, or tried to make the game more attractive for its fans, all of these rules have had a direct impact on how coaches prepare for every game and how position players are able to perform on the field. It was 1970 when the NFL and AFL merged. The style of football, ground and pound. The run game was in vogue from the electric company to the new champs, the Dolphins. But it wasn't until 1972 that running backs started to feel the effects of these changes. The NFL had just extended the hash marks on the field to almost double the distance they were previously. Okay, wait, what does, what does that even mean? So you know the two lines of just dashes that separate every yard at a time? They're closer to the logo in the center of the field, and they run up and down the left and right side? Yeah, right. So back in the 70s, those hash marks were much further apart than they are now. And basically the rule is that every team needs to snap the ball either on those hash marks or in between both lines in the middle of the field. But the problem was back in the day that a lot of those hash mark lines were much closer to the sideline. So if the ball went out of bounds, by default, the ref had to set the ball up at the leftmost or rightmost hash mark. And many teams would struggle with the fact that they weren't lined up in the middle of the field and many defenses could push them toward the sideline when they were trying to run plays. So almost using the sideline as an extra defender. Exactly. So now this rule that they implemented was to bring the hash mark lines much closer together, make it easier for kickers even to set up so that they're even with the goalposts or in between the goalposts further down the field for kicking. And many teams were able to run the ball more effectively because they were able to have more space starting in the middle of the field and much more unpredictability as to which direction they would go. But in turn, this also hampered the passing game because defenses were able to set up anywhere on the field, and they could disguise their coverages much more easily against offenses. I see. I see. Okay. Okay, so, with this uptick in the running game, the NFL noticed that many games were slow-paced and low-scoring. With executives arguing that higher scoring would lead to more excitement and intrigue for fans, the passing game was made a priority. Between 1974 and 1978, a series of new rule changes spurred an increase in passing that hasn't slowed down since. These adjustments included more leeway for offensive linemen when blocking defenders, restricted the contact defenders can initiate with receivers, and pushed the goalpost back 10 yards, from the front to the back of the end zone. It's no secret that nowadays, quarterbacks are the main attraction of this league. The NFL's newest measures have reflected that. To increase quarterback protection, defenders aren't allowed to hit quarterbacks too high, too low, or fall on them with their body weight effectively communicating who the NFL considers the most important players for the team and also their ratings. The way coaches and teams call plays during games has also changed dramatically. Playbooks are now unique to each team and can be modified at any time. However, it was only in the late 1940s when Cleveland's Paul Brown, the legendary coach who gave the team its namesake, first introduced his practice of actually writing down plays for players to memorize. He was the first to put all his plays on paper and have players study them. It makes sense now, but at the time it was really radical stuff. Here is a football team with a textbook. Players insert the mimeograph plays and many hours are spent in study. He used film to study teams, to study his opponent, and no coach had done that before. In the seven decades since, teams have continually evolved in their philosophies. 
Play calls in 2019 often sound like this. West right slot, 72 Z bingo, U split, Canet with 58 Lexus, Apple 314 hammer, dummy snap count on one, ready, great. Offenses utilize more complex and intricate schemes than at any other time in league history. Teams have a seemingly infinite number of plays to choose from on a weekly basis. To understand the full breadth of how much these players have to memorize, we'll leave it to the expert. Here's what former NFL quarterback Chris Sims told the Wall Street Journal. So joining me today is Chris Sims, a former NFL quarterback for uh, Tampa Bay, Denver, and Tennessee. Thank you. And he's going to teach me uh, how to break down an NFL play call. Sure. So, what did you just say? Sure. I think there's three, or let's say four main parts to every play call. First is going to be the formation, right? West right slot was the formation and the play we used. Okay, now it's going to be the protection. 72 was the protection. That's going to tell the five offensive linemen, the quarterback, myself, and the running back behind me all as far as who we're supposed to block on that certain play. And then the third part is the the route concepts, the actual play down the field. Z bingo, you split. That will tell all five eligibles what they do off that play. And then most importantly, we're going to say the snap count because we're not going to even get to run that play if everybody jumps offside or is not on the same page. Coaches these days are constantly developing newer ways to confuse defenses. In the early days, teams would always utilize the same compact formation. Running backs stood directly behind the quarterback, while linemen and receivers lined up adjacent to one another. Now, running backs can be positioned as wide receivers, and position players can move or switch positions to adjust to defensive coverages, even right before the ball is snapped. But the focus of play calling has shifted more towards passing than running. With the latter yielding half the average yards per play, throwing the ball is seen as a more successful approach. This evolution of offensive strategy has led to quarterbacks passing more efficiently and teams scoring in record numbers. Finding offensive-minded coaches and quarterbacks has become the league's primary focus, even if it means sparing no expense. Seen in Minneapolis tonight, Kirk Cousins jet centered into town with his wife and infant son, where dad's expected to sign a three-year, $84 million deal. Every penny is guaranteed. Jimmy Garoppolo, Mike, the 49ers quarterback, has agreed to an extension that is the biggest deal in the history of the National Football League. With another team moving to town, the Rams decided to hire their head coach one day after giving Washington offensive coordinator Sean McVay a second interview. The Rams will be making him the youngest head coach in NFL history. John Gruden, the new head coach of the Raiders, and the terms just in, courtesy of our Adam Schefter. How about this? Uh, Ten years, likely worth nearly $100 million. It is the longest initial coaching contract in NFL history. Ten years? Ten wow. years. Despite this shift to a pass-happy NFL, many of today's teams believe that they need to have a strong enough running game to create a balanced offensive attack. Young running backs have become a hot commodity in recent years, and some have even become superstars in their own right. The blitz was on, it's hot Gurley, is roaming through the middle of the field. Wow. Can he go the distance? It's Elliott. Elliott for the touchdown. No flat. Now Barkley up the middle, cuts to the outside. Saquon Barkley across midfield, down the sideline. However, the common perception in NFL circles is that the talent disparity between an elite running back and an average one is minimal at best. As running backs age and reach the end of their rookie contracts, teams look to avoid long-term deals and in some cases will apply what's called the franchise tag. 
This will retain a player on any given team for one year at 120% of their previous year's salary and prevents them from freely choosing their own path. With rookie contracts lasting four to five years and the added potential of being franchise tagged for three more, players typically cannot choose where they want to play until deep into their careers. This philosophy of using the franchise tag is one the Pittsburgh Steelers have abided by for the past two seasons. And the franchise tag is definitely a thing that NFL players kind of hate, is it the fact that there is no long-term security despite the big-time number that you'll get? Right. Yeah, that's tough to hear. This strategy of squeezing every ounce of football out of a young running back is nothing new. Around the NFL, it's often considered smart to avoid long-term contracts, especially ones that have a high risk of financially crippling a team down the road. When you pay big money, you want years of return on that investment. History says that running backs just don't last. Replacing veterans with younger running backs has also become customary, as they're often cheaper, can be found on a yearly basis, and make a more immediate impact on their teams. That leads us to another facet of the NFL that has devalued the running back position. The NFL Draft. In the first ever NFL draft in 1936, the Philadelphia Eagles selected running back Jay Berwanger first overall. In fact, in nine of the first 12 drafts, a running back or fullback was taken with the first pick. However, only seven more running backs were taken number one overall in the next 30 years. The mid-1970s did see a resurgence in the running game due to the changes we mentioned earlier, but that quickly dissipated. Only a few more running backs went first in the draft thereafter with the last occurrence coming in 1995. That is when the running back position received its biggest setback yet, when the Cincinnati Bengals drafted Penn State's Kajana Carter with the first overall pick. The optimism in landing the best prospect in the draft faded in Carter's first preseason game. For all the talent and promise that Carter had coming out of college, his career quickly fell apart before it even had the chance to begin. Robert Porsche, who was a pro bowler, beat the guard clean, was there in the backfield. Kijana, like, stuck his foot in the ground to avoid him, and that's when I think he blew the knee out. Just tried to plant, and he cut back to the left, and just fell down. The first pick in the 1995 draft had a torn ACL. He would go on to have season-ending injuries in four of the following five years, forever exemplifying the risk of investing so much in the running back position. Having Kajana Carter get not just an injury, but a serious injury right from jump in the preseason. It was a disaster and it set that franchise back. Teams have become increasingly hesitant to use high draft picks on running backs, as several first rounders have not panned out in recent years. Moreover, many talented players at the position have been selected in the later rounds of the draft. Pick in the 2017 NFL Draft, the New Orleans Saints select Alvin Kamara, running back, Tennessee. With the 105th pick in the 2017 NFL Draft, the Pittsburgh Steelers select James Conner. Including a former second-round pick by the name of Le'Veon Bell. Hello? Hello, Mr. Bouchette. Considering all the factors at play, the Steelers' reluctance to meet Bell's contract demands turned out to be more complicated than we thought. In February, we spoke with Ed Bouchette, 
an NFL reporter who has covered the Steelers for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette since 1985. In 2014, he was awarded the prestigious McCann Award for excellence in sports journalism, so we figured we'd ask him about Le'Veon, the Steelers, and why both sides cannot reach a deal. How are you? Oh, good. This is Sorge speaking, and I have my partner Bill on the phone as well, and we were hoping to ask you some questions about the Le'Veon contract situation. Okay. So, in your professional opinion, how important would you say Le'Veon has been to the Steelers' overall success? Uh, it's been up and down because he's been hurt. He's been suspended. But in 2016, you know, he, he led them in the playoffs. They, they wouldn't have won those two games without him. And then in the AFC Championship game, he left early with a groin injury. He was tremendous when he, you know, but he wasn't always available. So, I mean, he drove them through those first two games and then couldn't help them in the title game to get to the Super Bowl. So would you consider Le'Veon to be an all-time great in the grand scheme of Steelers history based on, you know, what he's done here over the past five years? Well, yeah. He, uh, I mean, he, he's in their record books. I put him behind Franco Harris and Jerome Bettis, but he might be the third best back that I've seen here. You know, he was only here five years. So the longevity was is not, you know, he's not going to get down as one of their career leaders because of that. But yeah, I mean, he, he was a, he was a great player while he was here. If he hadn't been hurt, he would have been more impactful. I think what's happened is the rules have leaned so heavily in, in, in the passing game and the way the passing game has just exploded through the years is more reason for the running game being devalued than anything. Le'Veon claimed that his holdout was about more than money. He wanted to protect himself from injury and felt responsible for setting the market for all future running backs and preventing the position from being diminished any further. I carry myself with a certain value and um, I just want to be valued in a certain way, you know. Um, I'm, I'm a guy at all the running backs in the league kind of looking at like, all right, Le'Veon, you got to help us out, you know, so. You kind of set the market. Yeah, yeah. you know, so um, I understand, you know, a lot of people may think a certain way of me, right. but it is what it is. I know what I bring to the game of football, um, you know, and what I bring, you know, as, as an offensive weapon, yeah. you know, to the Steelers. Do you feel like you're responsible for setting the market again and making the running back a powerful position? I do. So now running backs is, I think it's like the second lowest paid position outside of like, you know, punters and kickers yeah. and stuff, but like, just think about that. We're getting the ball the most. Crazy. However, Bouchette wasn't convinced. Do you think this holdout will have a positive or negative impact on running backs moving forward? I mean, does this does this bode well for the future? Well, no, I, I don't know that it bodes either, either way, other than if he doesn't get the blockbuster he thinks he's going to get. Uh, that I guess that could hurt how some teams look at running backs, but the, the Super Bowl that it was just played. Now we don't know if Todd Gurley was hurt or not, but he was the highest paid guy and and had a lot of guaranteed money. And he was pretty much passed up by a guy they signed off the street. And you know, I just don't. I don't know. It, it, I don't think the running back position is going to be enhanced. I, I really don't. I, I just think that uh, we're seeing where uh, teams are using two and three running backs and that you don't need that to pay that much money for a running back. And we'll see. I mean, the, the thing with, with Le'Veon is there's a lot of teams out there with cap money that need running backs. And it only takes one to, to overpay him or pay him what he wants, however you want to put it. And But I still don't think it's going to help the running back position. I just don't. I, I think teams are reevaluating this whole thing. As you can see, the Steelers, beyond left, they plugged in another guy, and he made he made the Pro Bowl. Do you think the emergence of James Conner breaking out this past year and reaching the Pro Bowl proves that 
the Steelers can plug any running back into their offense and be successful? Or do you think Connor is another previously undervalued running back that also has star potential? Yes, I'd say the latter. You can't just plug any running back in. They they do have a a really good offensive line, three pro bowlers in that line. Uh, That helps. Having Ben Roethlisberger at quarterback helps. And some of the receivers they've had because it takes the pressure off the running game. But, yeah, I think James Conner is more of a – he's also a very different style from Le'Veon. Like I said, Le'Veon had that patient style, and <clears throat> Conner's a banger. But he also can catch passes. Le'Veon demanded compensation for an elite running back and a mid-tier wide receiver to accurately reflect his value to the team. Was that a fair request? We looked into the numbers, and it turns out that there may be a legitimate argument as Bell has consistently been one of the most heavily used offensive weapons in the NFL. When you consider the talent and the level of excellence that he brings to the table, I don't think anybody could argue the all-purpose guy the last time we saw him, okay? The man had 321 carries. He had an additional 85 receptions. That is 406 touches and he was the second leading receiver on the Pittsburgh Steelers you take all of that into consideration and you consider the elite not just a dual threat but the elite dual threat that he is I definitely believe Le'Veon Bell is worth 15 million a year Le'Veon's impact is best exemplified by the Steelers postseason record with and without him two and one with Bell and one and three without obviously the organization felt differently so over the years, you've obviously seen the Steelers grow as a franchise. How have they been like to to cover? Well, it's it's changed through the years. You know, different coaches bring different ideas, and the times changed. I mean, it used to be pretty open to cover them. You could practically walk into an executive's office and sit down and talk to him, and, but you no longer can do that. For example, when Chuck Noll was the coach, we used to talk to him every day. We'd walk off the field with him, and he'd talk to us, and we'd interview him, and that's unheard of now. But they're more open than most. You know, it's it's gotten a lot more difficult to cover a team in this day and age than it was when I first started covering what were the Steelers looking to get out of Bell when they drafted him from Michigan State in 2013? Well, starting running back. Uh, he was a second-round pick, and back then I don't believe there was anybody drafted in the first round as a running back. The running backs were kind of devalued, if you will, at the time. And one of the reasons I think they liked him was that he, first, he was a good-sized kid, and he was a, you know, he caught the ball, too, and he's proven to do that in the pros so he was something that could enhance their passing game and their running game and he, he certainly did that during his time here what would you say is the biggest problem the Steelers have with handing Le'Veon a lucrative long-term contract well they don't have a they didn't have a problem with that they tried he didn't want the money they were offering and that's why he held out that's why he didn't sign a contract in 2017 and why he held out all last year it's not like they didn't want him they did want him but they've reached a breaking point now because they don't want to tag him again because they're, you know, concerned he would sit out again. And he's not going to accept their long-term deal, so they, they've moved on. Is this just about the length and overall money or more about the guarantee money? Because many will argue that the contract value people see in the media is not always accurate since the guaranteed money is always much less. Exactly. And Le'Veon said that. He wanted more guaranteed, and the Steelers weren't going to give it to him. So that was that. He wanted more guaranteed, so he gave up $14.5 million versus, I think everybody's waiting to see if he's going to be able to make that up this year, whatever contract he signs now. But, you know, he rolled the dice, he took a stand, and uh, 
God bless him. How would you say the Steelers fan base perceives him right now? I think there's very few sympathetic to Le'Veon Bell. Uh, I just, um, and that would include his teammates. What would you say the atmosphere is like in the locker room? Are many of his teammates angered by the fact that he held out and didn't return during the season? Yeah, they were angry. I think a lot of it had to do with, I think he led them to believe he was coming back. And when he didn't, I mean, a couple of them said to me, hey, this is our chance to go to a Super Bowl, and he's hurting it. So right now, I think they're just happy to, to be done with him. Now, what is the Steelers' unwillingness to offer a substantial amount of guaranteed money to Le'Veon? They don't. They have a philosophy, uh, and the guarantee. I mean, it's not like they didn't give him any guaranteed money. Right. Guarantee would have been in a signing bonus, first year salary, whatever that was. And you know, I mean, he turned down fourteen and a half million guaranteed to play this year. Uh, that was in the franchise tag. So I just, I don't understand his whole tact. Could he have gotten hurt this year and never played again? Yeah, he. That, yeah. Surely could have. It could have happened when he was jet skiing. You know, it right. could have happened then. He could have gotten hurt. And never, never made another dime. I, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I thought it was foolish, and a lot of people, I think, around the league thought it was foolish. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Mr. Bouchette. We really appreciated your answers to our questions. Hey, welcome. Hopefully, we talk to you soon. Have a great day. So. How did this saga end? On February 20th, the Steelers announced that they would not use the franchise tag on Bell for a third straight year, guaranteeing that he could explore the free agent market when the new league year opened March 13th. Few teams pursued Le'Veon in free agency, but eventually he decided to join the New York Jets. He signed a four-year, $52 million contract that with incentives could be worth up to $61 million total. $35 million were guaranteed. Two million more than the Steelers' best offer. The NFL community appeared split on whether Le'Veon made the right decision. Look, we're going to call it like it is here. This is a disappointing contract in light of what Bell could have gotten, in light of what he should have gotten. The $35 million guaranteed was right around the number both you and I said yesterday. So maybe a little disappointment that he didn't get to $65 million, had to settle for around $53 million. But the guaranteed money is what was key. It's what the Steelers were not offering. And he got $35 million from the Jets. I think he won. Um, because he got $35 million guaranteed. I think he lost. If I if I had played this for him, if I would advised him, I'm taking the 14.5 last mm-hmm. year because mm-hmm. you can't ever recoup that. He wanted to set a new market. That was not established here. So I'm not saying he lost. I'm saying the win that he articulated, he was after, did not get accomplished in yes. this ordeal. Despite the polarizing reaction, Le'Veon seemed very content with his new contract and happy with the decision he made. Just signed a four-year contract with the New York Jets. How do you feel? I feel amazing. Um, I feel like the decision I made and all the layover and the long sitting out, it all paid off in the long run, and I'm happy where I am today. I feel fit and feel valued, you know, where I want to get, you know, guaranteed security um, over the course of my contract and playing football. So ultimately, you know, I got that. Unfortunately, after four years of questionable front office decisions, the Jets fired their general manager, Mike McCagnan, on May 15th. It was reported that on top of McCagnan's lack of success with the Jets, the deal for Le'Veon Bell became a sticking point between him, Jets' ownership, and first-year head coach Adam Gase. Okay, so elephant in the room, Bill. For those that don't know, Bill's been a lifelong Jets fan. What do you make of all of this? 
Yeah, the Jets fan thing I don't like people finding out about. I would say, to be honest, McCagnan was not a great GM. The Jets were 24-40 and 40 under his reign these past four years. So the notion that signing Le'Veon Bell to a big contract was the only reason he was fired is silly to me. And it's silly to think that Adam Gase was trying to drive him out because of that. Obviously, there was some sort of dis- discontent or happy unhappiness about what McCagnan was doing uh, with the New York Jets within the organization. And, I, and hey, you and I both know there was definitely frustration from the Jets fans about McCagnan and his building of the team over the last few years. No matter what happened behind the scenes, I think McCagnan probably had to go at some point. And I think Le'Veon will still flourish with the Jets. I still think he'll be a valuable asset with the team moving forward. But it just goes to show how the running back problem and the devaluation not only hurts running backs, but those who spend big money on it can end up losing their jobs in the long run. Okay, well, that about sums it up. What do you think? Thank you guys so much for listening. This has been episode one of Frame of Reference. A big shout out to our good friend Tianson Chen for her wonderful cover art and Brian Duffy for his original compositions. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from and leave a review. We'll be back in the fall with the remainder of season one. So long and take care.